The rise and fall of Glenn Cassida, Bill Lee takes office as governor, controversy still surrounds David Byrd, that bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest is still up at the Capitol, how will the state decide to spend a massive surplus of federal funds aimed at helping poor working families? These are among the top politics stories of 2019, and they're expected to still play out this year. I'm Dwayne Gang, the politics editor here at The Tennessean, getting a chance to join Joel Ebert and Natalie Allison on the latest episode of Grand Divisions. This is the week of January 6th. It's good to be here and chat with you guys, turn the tables a little bit uh, for a couple weeks now that you guys are being asked uh, questions about politics and about uh, coverage of politics in Tennessee. Let us start with uh, the rise and fall of Glenn Cassida. That is probably our top politics story of the year of 2019. Uh, let's start with you, Joel. Kind of give us a sense of what happened in a nutshell with Glenn Cassida and his uh, very brief tenure as House Speaker. Yeah, he entered office uh, sort of on a, a high rise. He took office in January of 2019 uh, with full support from his caucus. I, there weren't many opponents even on the Democratic side when he was uh, voted in on the full chamber. Uh, made a lot of changes immediately, ranging from committee sizes, uh, naming even Democrats to be chairs, two Democrats as chairs of committees, uh, to House rule changes, uh, to then just having an entire session in a very, um, some would say, iron-heavy or heavy-handed uh, manner. Uh, where he really tried to exert his influence in many ways, none more so than on the uh, school vouchers legislation uh, when he kept the the vote total um, open for at least 40-some minutes. And then, Natalie, uh, the downfall was very quickly at the end of the session. Yeah, so I, I remember um, it was the Monday after session ended. We had just moved into the Tennessean office. It was our first day in the office, and... Um, Joel and I were sitting there, and I took this photo of Joel. He had sunglasses on. We we finally had windows, and Joel's feet were up on his desk, and we were just trying to enjoy the first Monday out of session. Um, Which is normally a very dead time. Yeah, very dead time. Yeah, this is this is one of this is just a moment I won't forget when I when I think back on how all of it happened, and then. Within 40 minutes of that photo being taken is when uh, really it all started to fall apart. And um, the Tennessean later that day published a story um, showing some pretty damning text messages sent between um, Cassida and his 32-year-old, well, now 32-year-old at the time he was a bit younger, uh, chief of staff, Cade Cothran, whom Cassida had given a raise of to $199,000 a year. Um, as Cade became chief of staff. And um, that the day ended with Cade resigning. And um, then there were there was about a month of um, the caucus eventually turning on the speaker um, to whom they had throughout the session sort of been forced to show this really intense loyalty. And Casta had had set it up that way. He had quickly made changes. 
and in some ways stifling um, the ability to debate and show any kind of dissension on what he was ordering. Um, and we saw all of that unravel really within just a few weeks. And, and we would be remiss to not mention the work of Phil Williams uh, over at News Channel 5, who really kicked things off at the very end of the session when he wrote a story about uh, racist text messages that uh, Kate Cothran had sent to Glenn Cassida. That uh, kind of spurred us into action. We had some documents that we had been going through. We really accelerated that um, on that day when I was kicking uh, my feet in the air. Um, and that's kind of what ultimately led, I think we wrote a, a headline, uh, 19 days for Glenn Cassidy's downfall, which is really an astounding number of days. I, I think that is one of the things that surprised me the most about that story was not that there wasn't controversy over those text messages and his actions, but how uh, quickly things transpired and how that even it, when he tried to kind of keep a handle of things and get a control of the story, he was unable to to do that, to go from someone uh, being elected overwhelmingly, you know, as as speaker and having that support of the caucus, to going into losing that support so quickly, I think, was one of the most remarkable things about that story. Well, and I would chalk it up to uh, a couple of things. One, um, a lot of members weren't comfortable with Cassida openly or, 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 or behind the scenes when they voted for him. I think there were always rumors of Cassida um, being kind of a, um, uh, a shadowy figure of some sort. And so when these allegations were able to come out, um, it, it gave members an opportunity to jump forward and to, to immediately, uh, you know, kind of find footing on, on an excuse. Uh, two, um, the fact that it wasn't just us, I think, uh, played a role. Um, when we covered Jeremy Durham's downfall in 2016, uh, it often felt like the Tennessean was kind of the rag doll and, and always held up and said, now this is the liberal media. But when you have competition on this. It's harder to ignore. It's harder for a Republican caucus who is still reeling with other issues from the session, ranging from David Byrd uh, to a controversial vouchers vote, to ignore. And three, there was political pressure. You had the governor and the lieutenant governor coming out and saying Glenn Cassida needs to uh, change. That doesn't happen. With and and that was all... Gradual, though. I mean, it, yes. it, it happened quickly, but it happened even in that time period incrementally. It wasn't like, of course, the day after these these stories came out about Cassidy and Cade that that the governor or the lieutenant governor were quick. To, it was hardly to a Beth Harwell we, calling for was, David Byrd's resignation. Exactly. Yes. It, it was not that kind of response that we had seen, sure, from Harwell and David Byrd before. It was like um, the needle was moving just like a, a tiny amount day by day until somehow we, we got there. Um, and, and there was also a level of paranoia within the caucus. There were a lot of caucus members who were wondering and calling us, what else do you have? What else do you oh, have? So and that paranoia. fear is what led to, I think, ultimately the caucus voting to oust him. And that's what some of them said is we just didn't know what was going to drop next. And I, we should remind everybody, the caucus, why that is so important is the Republicans hold a supermajority in the legislature. So the Democrats in this case were kind of, they didn't have as much of a say and it was the support of the caucus that uh, that mattered the most. There's still, of course, a lot of fallout from that. I think the biggest one is we have a new House Speaker, for example. Cameron Sexton was the one that came out on top as the, the new Speaker. But what are some of the other kind of things that we might see as the legislature reconvenes that would still be kind of a 
kind of a fallout from that story. I mean, some of the committee chairmen that he had, he picked are still going to be there. Um, Rule changes are still going to be in effect. Um, he uh, essentially killed off uh, any floor debate on on or, or 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 just opportunity for people to to kind of voice their uh, uh, opposition to certain things. Um, there was a ban on video live streaming that he implemented that I'm curious to hear uh, House Speaker Sexton on whether he will also allow that ban in the chamber. This is for uh, those lawmakers that themselves would oftentimes mm-hmm. take to Facebook Live mm-hmm. to, fi- uh, to live stream a committee hearing. I-, I think the most interesting thing this session, though, will be on the fallout of Cassidy, will, will be himself. How will he try to reexert his authority? Um, he's still got a bastion of supporters as evidenced by the fact that he hasn't gone away yet. Um, and they're still hiring to do their fundraisers. That's right. And and so I think what he's going to have to navigate is, can he be an effective thorn in the side of leadership? Can leadership uh, quell any major opposition? Um, because if not, then we're at a return to what I saw a few years ago when Beth Harwell was often flummoxed by the um, more conservative right-wing part of the party, which would join forces on occasion with Democrats and completely stop things. One of the other big politics stories of the year, of course, is Governor Bill Lee in his time in office. He, of course, was elected in 2018, but took office in 2019. Uh, What is kind of politically, how would you kind of sum up his first year uh, in in office? I mean, certainly his his most notable accomplishment is the passage of uh, school voucher legislation, which he dubbed the Education Savings Account bills and and he he did what had not been done it it was not passed before and i think in large part i th- i think it's safe to say to glenn Cassida and the pressure he put on his members it came down to um a a razor thin margin of course as joel mentioned the the vote board was held open for at least 40 minutes that day um the house was voting on the bill while Cassida tried to wrangle a couple people to flip their votes um but but bill lee accomplished what what had not been done before and so i think that's that's probably the the biggest takeaway from his first year in office and what he has accomplished he has told us he's also proud of uh this give act which is essentially giving uh money to technical schools um to try and change the the narrative almost there's there's been so much of a stress in tennessee um to to provide money and funding to people that want to go for four-year education opportunities, but less so on technical front. Uh, so he's really tried to spearhead that. Um, it, it's been a mixed bag of sorts on on other fronts. He uh, and the administration have learned a lot of things. They have taken uh, haranguing at time from lawmakers, uh, from members of the media. And so I do think that it still is a work in progress to see, you know, uh, do they have a a major accomplishment that they will try to spearhead in 2020, which is an election year and a presidential year. Um, If they don't, you're only two years away from running for re-election. So you've got to really kind of gear up for uh, a major accomplishment aside from vouchers. And and at the end of the calendar year, uh, we had the the refugee situation 
come up, which which really sort of put a spotlight on um, maybe this growing divide among Republicans over their support of Bill Lee. So overwhelmingly, you know, he had lots of support, certainly within the legislature, um, certainly among Republicans and, and politicos when he started as governor. Um, but we, we've seen some division. We've seen criticism over his decision to continue accepting refugees. Um, some people who were not happy with him that it seems like he's, he's maybe doing some behind the scenes work to actually get the bus taken down by appointing a couple new members to the Capitol Commission, and he's not um, maybe delivering what some of these far-right voters thought they were getting when they voted for Billy. At the same time, he's still bringing in certain people like Mae Beavers. Uh, He appointed her at the very end of the year uh, to the Board of Parole, and he brought in Joe Carr, uh, Courtney Rogers, um, and Tillman Goins. All of these are former uh, lawmakers who are on the more conservative end of the spectrum uh, that certainly would give him uh, uh, in that caucus or that group uh, some support. The question is, are those ovations enough? Uh, so we'll see. And I think on the refugee issue, it shows that at least on one uh, on on this particular issue that he was willing to be independent, you know, to, to be independent, you know, as, as opposed to just falling in line with what the majority of Republican lawmakers in the legislature Certainly. felt he should do. And which is take, a, a very, taking on a, and right. it's a very different approach from him for him, because when he ended the legislative session, he vowed to not veto a single bill. That's not something a governor typically does. That shows that he's in lockstep with the legislature. Uh, this act is probably, I said it on, on Twitter, it's probably the most, um, uh, I, I wouldn't call it defiant, but most out of step with the legislature he has made so far of his one year in office. And, and Bill Lee, unlike some, unlike his past two, unlike his two predecessors, Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen, did not have any government, elected government experience. So I do think you saw some of him and his team and his office finding their way along Mm -hmm. uh, as the year progressed. Haslam, of course, was the mayor of Knoxville, and Phil Bredesen, of course, was mayor of Nashville. So they had kind of government experience and experience dealing with councils and other elected officials that Lee has kind of had to start uh, finding his way as the year uh, uh, went along. Normally, we wouldn't be talking about like a single legislative district, but David Byrd is still around, and he is still going to be kind of a politics story in, in 2020. What's the, he now has a challenger in the Republican party, but why is he so controversial? Normally we wouldn't be talking about just one kind of lawmaker who is not in a leadership position. Well, yeah. I mean, I think anyone who, who listens to this podcast is familiar with what's going on with David Byrd. He, he has been accused of sexually assaulting three women when they were teenagers in the late eighties. He was their high school basketball coach and teacher at the time in Wayne County. Um, and he has, you know, he's had these allegations hanging over him since the spring of 2018. Um, so we're we're going to be hitting the almost two-year mark uh, this spring around filing time. And David Byrd, despite telling his caucus back in August during a, a closed-door meeting um, that uh, Joel was able to find out what was said in, he told them he wasn't going to be running for re-election. Since then, there's been a lot of rumors that he's telling people he is and he's planning on sticking around. Um, but he has refused to say publicly what his plans are. What and, kind of bind does this put Republicans? Oh, in, in a, a huge bind, I, and it, it's uh, it, he's 
almost a political unicorn. He has been somebody that is plagued with scandal, but somehow had the upper hand on most of the people. Uh, the governor uh, has tried to give ovations in some sense, but he hasn't outright said, David Byrd needs to go away. He's the worst thing ever, right? Uh, it'd be one thing, again, for uh, Beth Harwell, somebody like that, to come out. But we haven't had that flat out from any leadership. Um, there's been couching in some sense. Uh, Glenn Cassidy supported him. He named him a committee chair and then realized the headache that that was because of protests and members that grew concerned. Um, and so he removed him. But uh, same thing with Cameron Sexton. He has not flat out said that he should not seek re-election. He hasn't said that. He, but Cameron Sexton essentially uh, put a stop to any effort to expel David Byrd. Um, he he said he wasn't interested in, in putting it up for an expulsion vote. He went out of his way to seek this attorney general opinion on whether the legislature should do that, even while a number of people were saying this is completely unnecessary. We don't need the AG to weigh on in this. We can expel whoever we want. Um, so Cameron Sexton, I think through his actions, has made it known he's he's not really interested in making it a priority to get rid of David Byrd. I think the real big question for this year is how serious are Republicans going to take another move by Democrats, including Gloria Johnson, to try and either investigate or expel David Byrd? Uh, last year, during the special session, um, Republicans... Mar uh, uh, specifically, uh, Representative Curcio got up and said, we will investigate. We will fully uh, vet all of these claims. And now has kind of, you know, changed his tune in some sense or. Yeah, well, he had he had. He had made that that claim, and you know he was he was praised by these activists who have been calling for something to be done, and sort of quickly, in a way, uh, walked it back by saying, "Well, I'm going to defer to the speaker's decision mm -hmm. on when and if we do this." Well, of course, the House Speaker Cameron Sexton uh, isn't going to make that a priority. He's not going to make a, a House Judiciary uh, hearing a priority, at least based on what has already been said about what they're going to do. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if someone like Bill Dunn, who's who's on his way out, former educator, who has spoken out against, you know, some of what um, Cameron Sexton has already done, certainly on refugees, um, will he speak up and will he try to encourage his colleagues to say David Byrd shouldn't be here? I don't know. We mentioned it a couple times already, but the Nath bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest, that is one of these topics that doesn't seem to go away. There will probably still continue to be protests at the uh, at the Capitol remove it. Where does it stand? Now we have the governor right in the mix of it. Um, he, of course, uh, went viral, uh, so to speak, when he, when Natalie, when you wrote about the story about him uh, signing in to law, the, the proclamation for Nathan Bedford Forrest Day, which uh, past governors have done because it's a re it's a requirement, but he kind of did it and did not at that time say that he would look into changing it. Of course, that story went viral. Even Ted Cruz tweeted about it. Um, but he's now right there in the the middle of this. Where do we see that story going in 2020? So the the latest we have we've heard on that is that um, Stuart McWhorter, he is the 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 commissioner of the Finance and Administration Department, and also the chair of the Capital Commission, which can decide the fate of the bust. He has said, uh, seemingly with the governor's blessing, that the Capital Commission will meet again by the end of February to discuss removal of the bust. Um, so that uh, you know that could mean they meet and and say no, we don't need to take a vote on this. So that could mean that they do meet in February and they vote on it. Um, certainly. The uh, the votes could be there if if that's what they're going to do. If if all of the um, members of the governor's administration were instructed to vote for the removal, and with the two new community members, both who of whom were African Americans, if they all you know voted for the removal, the thing could be gone. At the same time, 
Governor Bill Haslam was against the bust. His administration, people he appointed to the Capitol Commission, bucked him. And in a 7-5 vote in 2017, I guess that was, um, uh, kept the bust. Sure. So, I mean, there is no I, – I wouldn't hold my breath and, if and, I were people that want the bust it's out, it. that and it's so going to happen. And so the question is, is, is how badly does, does Lee want it? You know, yeah. like he, he got vouchers done, right? He, he, you can put the pressure on when you need to put it on. Um, maybe maybe it's not something that he, he ultimately wants to I, see. He has said he, he was in favor of context, so maybe he'll just stop there. And, but there is a groundswell of, of leadership, at least. You talked to Jeremy Faison a little bit uh, in a way that we hadn't seen in the past. So uh, I, I, things might be turning in the direction of either changing or moving the bust. Wh- whether um, it happens sooner rather than later, I do think the there is kind of maybe a shift in the in the tide a little bit on on that uh, issue, both I mean, because of the issues taking place nationally with the, the issues of Confederate uh, monuments and, and memorials. Um, but also just about who he was and how controversial he was, or you know, early member and leader of the, the KKK, for example. But also someone, uh, if you really want to argue, you know, over the merits of who should be in the Capitol and what their uh, impact was on state government, he didn't really have any real outsized role in actual state government. wasn't a, a governor or anybody like that. At the end of the year, uh, we wrote a lot of stories about the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families uh, Fund. Uh, the Beacon Center initially reported uh, that there was about $732 million in unspent funds there. Uh, we continue to report on the issue, and turns out there was other federal grants, grants that the state never spent, all told, probably close to a billion dollars of money that the Tennessee has either stockpiled or completely left on the table. At the end of the year, we actually then started to see some tensions growing between lawmakers and the administration on this, uh, particularly with the Department of Human Services. Um, where do we stand on that? Do we think we'll probably get a plan in place from the administration or from lawmakers uh, on how to maybe more effectively spend uh, that money? So an administration plan has already been put forth. They did that in November. They upset a lot of the legislators by, um, you know, by the legislators' accounts not giving them any heads up on on doing this. Um, so at this point, where we are is that uh, the speakers of the House and Senate have appointed a TANF working group. They are meeting every few weeks or so um, to ask questions, hear testimony from uh, relevant parties, and it appears that they're going to put together maybe some kind of proposal for legislation. At a minimum, it sounds like there probably will be legislation um, to increase uh, reporting requirements from the Department of Human Services um, on how they're spending money, particularly this federal block grant. Um, But the, the TANF working group is also exploring ways to put that money into use, figure out the best way to use it and what they would call a conservative way to make sure people are actually getting off, um, you know, government support and and use that as a as a way to move people out of poverty. Um, but yeah, there there was a, a standoff for a bit between the legislature and DHS, and by extension, uh, the governor's office. It seems like now they've all agreed. Um, okay, DHS maybe got ahead of themselves, but we're all going to work together on this and um, try to do something with the program. I mean, I think politically, that's one of the things that I found interesting from a pure pure politics point of view was how lawmakers themselves tried 
and wanted to make sure they inserted themselves into this story and into this issue, which typically would be something that would be much more focused just on the administration and how a department, which has quite a bit of flexibility to spend that federal money, you know, have we seen this type of thing before on other issues where the, where lawmakers really want to get into that level of trying to, you know, dictate to a department of how to spend or how to operate? I don't think to this extent. Um, I think in a broader sense, we have seen the House try to exert more authority in the budget process. That's a byproduct of House Speaker Cassidy's um, time in, in brief time in office, or at least in the Speaker's office. That continued when uh, Speaker Cassidy or <laughs> Sexton uh, allowed those uh, December budget hearings and November budget hearings. Um, but no, I don't think we've seen that level of almost micromanagement. Uh, of the legislature on a specific department, aside from maybe some of these oversight committees, uh, which every now and again do that. You know, you see some uh, action by like uh, on Department of Correction, um, but for the most part, not and in, in the particular. Same way. Some lawmakers genuinely kind of like angry that they weren't told about things in advance, mm-hmm. that they were kind of just sprung on some of these. Yeah, uh, I think uh, issues. Uh, David Hawk, he's a member of the the TANF Working Group, also the House Finance Committee. I think he actually said during the last TANF Working Group to the DHS Commissioner, uh, "We got our feelings hurt," um, and and that that sort of is how they all felt. They were all offended that they weren't consulted and um, that they were caught off guard, and um, so. So at this point, I think they they've probably for the most part uh, gotten over their initial anger about it. But um, they're they're probably going to do something this session with with TANF. Uh, and on that note, these were certainly not the only big political stories of 2019. Ten care block grant proposal that the governor was required to do, but su- successfully submitted uh, to the federal government. That will be one that we'll want to watch as 2020 uh, unfolds. But there's certainly. Um, Uh, These aren't the only ones. And of course, 2020 is a big politics year. We have the Senate race. We have a competitive GOP primary to replace Lamar Alexander. We have an open, at least one open congressional seat with uh, Representative Phil Rowe deciding to retire. So 2020, I think, certainly going to be... And don't forget the presidential uh, uh, That's right. We have a Super Tuesday uh, here. We are one of the Super Tuesday states, and uh, I fully expect us to continue to get some attention um, as uh, March approaches. So thank you for having me in here to chat with you guys about the politics stories of 2019. Thanks for hosting, Dwayne. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. As always, you can find us on Tuesdays wherever you get your podcast. This podcast is produced by John Garcia and Erica Whitney. I'm Joel Lieber. And I'm Natalie Allison. See you next week. Music